Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is Reset. Coming up in just a bit, a new museum exhibit explores the history of Muslim Chicago. All of these artifacts are loaned to us, and we're so grateful to uh, Muslim communities, uh, urban and suburban, that have been so generous with their objects and their stories, of course. But first, most Americans who go bankrupt do so because of unpaid medical debt, and that's often despite having insurance. But nearly 6,000 Southside residents will soon be breathing a huge sigh of relief. They'll get a letter saying, may you have a beautiful, wonderful holiday. Your debt has been forgiven. Enjoy Thanksgiving. So how does all this debt just disappear? Members of the United Christian Church made it happen. First, they raised about $38,000. Then they partnered with the nonprofit RIP Medical Debt to buy and then forgive more than $5 million in medical debt from families in Inglewood, Roseland, Auburn-Gresham, Washington Heights, and West Pullman. The Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III is senior pastor of Chicago's Trinity United Church of Christ. He helped spearhead the project and explains how the concept works. Debt is usually written off and then sold uh, to these debt collecting agencies. And so what we see is, is that there are people who are making money off of other people's misery. So if you imagine $38,000 a debt collector is purchasing, but $38,000, $5.3 million, uh, that they're making massive amounts of money because there's so much greed or predatory capitalism is centerpiece in, in how the medical industry functions. And we wanted to operate with compassion, with restoration, and empower people because the number one reason that people lose their homes is because of medical debt. Uh, it tears up your credit, and as a result, you cannot pass on your wealth to your children. For most African Americans, uh, their wealth is rooted in their home. If they lose their home, they then do not pass on wealth, they pass on debt to their children. And we wanted to relieve that burden in Chicago. Now, national as well as local church groups raised money for this, despite all the funds going to forgive medical debt um, in just three zip codes in Chicago's South Side. Why did you decide to target that specific area? We wanted RIP to assist us in finding out where the uh, the hardest hit areas were. We wanted to make sure those who were marginalized, those who were hurting as a result of medical debt, that we focused on those who were the poorest of the poor. Uh, we were operating out of the biblical model that uh, the last shall be first, the first shall be last, uh, that the Spirit of the Lord has has called us to set captives free and to bring good news, not just preach the good news, uh, but to live the good news for those who, who are poor. And so we focused on these areas. Now, it's all through Cook County, but these areas proportionally had a higher level of medical debt. We also focused on certain rural areas uh, that also had a high number of medical debt. But, of course, you didn't have the high number of people in that area. So it ended up being uh, Auburn-Gresham, Inglewood, uh, West Pullman, Roseland, and Washington Heights had the highest proportion. And they will receive these letters coming up very soon saying that your debt has been forgiven. I'm curious about the nonprofit you partnered up with. They're called, as you said, RIP Medical Debt. Yes. Actually founded by former debt collectors. Debt collectors, Tell yes. us more about this group. Now, what's very fascinating is that uh, these two individuals who, who run the foundation or the nonprofit, their conscience was bothering them. They reset their moral compass by creating this nonprofit by releasing debt. They realized that they were profiting and they had become wealthy as a result of other people's misery. 
And now they have a, a strong focus on abolishing medical debt. To this day, I believe I just checked the uh, counter that they're up to about uh, $900 million in debt that has been forgiven. Uh, they are hoping to move into the $75 billion category in the next couple of years. Wow. Reverend, I'm curious about how you think about debt, because when people go into debt, it's often people say you, you overspent, um, you didn't balance your budget correctly, that debt is your responsibility. But as I understand it, you have a different view. Oh, absolutely. Especially when we're talking about, about medical debt. Uh, for example, if we were to go to uh, Walgreens or CVS and we picked up a Tylenol, hey, let's say it's $5, but when you go to the hospital, it's 15 uh, When you pick up some disposable latex gloves, it's, it's $2 or something of that nature. But when you go to the hospital, it's $53. And then you receive a bill an itemized bill that is not only charging you for the procedure, but is also upcharging you for things that are much cheaper in the common marketplace. And so we have a broken medical system uh, that puts people not only in debt, but ruins their dreams. And so there should not be indebtedness in such a way where we saddle people uh, with the kind of debt where they have to pass it on to their children. So the two forms of debt that we eventually want to see wiped out in this country, medical debt and student debt. So it's medical debt today. It's student debt tomorrow. And this is a part of a movement, not just a moment, that we're working with other organizations. And biblically, it's very clear that one should not profit from the poor. Now, in America, especially the way that things are operating in terms of the administration today, it seems as if we have now valorized, we've lifted up uh, the fact that predatory capitalism needs to be an American value. No, uh, we need to shift the value back to compassion, restoration, and not equality, uh, but we need to be equitable. What does that mean philosophically or institutionally? What kinds of shifts are you talking about? Well, one of the shifts I believe that Dr. King speaks so very highly of, uh, he talked about the fact of what was called the Poor People's Campaign, which Reverend William Barber is, is working on today. Uh, the idea of redistribution of the wealth, that we have enough for everyone, and that the value or the understanding or how you measure a society is not how the uh, well-off and privileged are doing. You value it by the most vulnerable. I grew up as an athlete, and you always measured your team not by your starting five, but you measured your team by your weakest link, and you strengthened the weakest link in order for your team to develop. America has to learn the same value, and that is why within the Christian tradition, the Jewish tradition, the Muslim tradition, the Buddhist tradition, all of these traditions focus on the idea of how do you strengthen the one who is vulnerable so that they are able to live out their full human call in life. Well, I'm sure as you've been following uh, the, the campaign, the presidential campaigns right now, I mean, one of the questions that comes up is, how do we pay for this? Um, mm -hmm. If we're talking about wiping out student debt, or we're talking about wiping out medical debt, or reforming the health care system, right. that there's a cost attached to that, that the United States 
might not be able to afford. How do you respond to those concerns? We cannot afford uh, not to do this. Number one, we have created so many loopholes uh, for those who are well off that they literally do not pay any taxes. Let's first start with a progressive tax that allows people to pay their fair share. Second, uh, that we need to actually have an audit of the Department of Defense. Why are we spending uh, so much money on, say, one particular aircraft or the design of of a particular military piece of, of hardware? We need to invest back into our people. We need to invest in our children. There is no reason that a child should go to college and be indebted until they almost are in their 60s. It makes absolutely no sense. So America has the ability. The issue is, does America have the will? Or I should say it this way, we don't have the political will, but it's our job as the church to make sure that the moral compass is shifted so that we will have the moral will to make sure that the next generation is able to thrive and not just survive. Well, this is another debate I'm seeing right now, people questioning the degree to which religion and politics have become intertwined. And I wonder if you get pushback about your position or, I mean, churches are generally nonprofit organizations and and people make the argument, if you're not paying taxes, you need to stay out of the political realm. What's your response to that? Politics literally means polis. That means the affairs of the city. We're not talking about endorsement, but we are talking about the concern for those who are the most vulnerable. And the black church tradition at its best has always been a reform and transformation tradition. Abolition did not come out of the European Protestant tradition. It came from the Sojourner Truths, and it came from the Harriet Tubmans and the Frederick Douglasses. Uh, when we talk about the labor movement, you're talking about A. Philip Randolph, who was connected uh, to the AME Church. When we're talking about uh, the Civil Rights Movement, we're talking about Bayard Rustin, a Quaker who was also gay, who was the mentor of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And you're talking about the organizing in Mississippi, Mississippi that was one of the most repressive areas. You're talking about a Fannie Lou Hamer who was the organizer. So if we were to remove the prophetic voice of the black church in America, we would still be in Jim Crow. We would not have the union organizing that we have today. And there might still be a few states that would still believe that slavery was okay. So what's next in this effort? Is this the, the only round of fundraising you're going to do to try to wipe out medical debt? What's next? Well, before I came up here, I was just talking with uh, an official from the AME Church, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, about how that denomination uh, can be connected to this movement. I will be talking uh, personally with uh, the Progressive National Baptist Convention. I'll be talking with the National Baptist Convention, the Church of God in Christ, uh, the PAW, that's the Pentecostal Assemblies of the World, all these different denominations, and even some of our newer groups like the Full Gospel, to say, let's join this movement. Let's make sure that prosperity ministry is not the centerpiece in America, which is a very small portion of churches, but they have the mic. It's time for churches and faith communities that truly are about compassion, restoration, and justice to take back the mic. To quote Nas, one mic will change the world. If we take the mic, we can change America. We've been talking about these roughly 6,000 families on the South Side. When you take a step back and you think about the impact this project can have on communities, 
What do you imagine? I said on Sunday, and people laughed and they shouted at the same time. I said, within a couple of weeks in Chicago, you're going to see people shouting all over the city. They'll be at the bus stop. They'll be at the corner of 79th and Cottage Grove because they found out that their debts are forgiven. As a result of their debts are forgiven, guess what? They're going to be able to pass on their wealth to their children. They're going to be able to take out a second mortgage, maybe not for uh, medical debt, but maybe for a home improvement uh, that will be an investment in their family. When we allow people to thrive, we allow them to utilize their own creativity to transform their local neighborhood. This is what we're talking about. We're talking about blessing elders and blessing youth. We're talking about blessing generations that haven't been born. And so the real blessing of what's going to happen, I won't have the opportunity to even witness it, but I use what Howard Thurman says. He said when he was a child that he saw an elder planting some pecan or pecan trees, depending upon what part of the country you're mm-hmm. from. And he said, to the, he said to this elder gentleman, he said, why are you planting these trees? Um, you will not live long enough to eat any fruit from them. And the elder leaned back, uh, looked at young Howard Thurman and said, all my life, I've been eating from trees I did not plant. I can at least plant a tree for another generation. That's Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III, senior pastor at Chicago's Trinity United Christian Church. Reverend Moss, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. Chicago is home to one of the largest and most diverse Muslim communities in the country. And a new interactive exhibition at the Chicago History Museum aims to explore the lives and histories of Muslim Chicagoans. It's called American Medina, Stories of Muslim Chicago, and it runs through May 2021. Joining me now is exhibit curator Peter Alter. He's chief historian at the Chicago History Museum and director of the Studs Turkle Center for Oral History. Also with us is Nuseba Malik a junior at the Islamic Foundation School and teen historian with the exhibit. Peter Nusebo, welcome to Reset. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So this exhibit is collaborative and it's community focused. Peter, how did it come together? Uh, It's come together over the last almost four years. It's the third in a series of shows about the Abrahamic or Abrahamic faith. So we've done a Catholic Chicago show and a Shalom Chicago show. And so We started the oral history process. The oral histories are the interpretive backbone of the exhibition. So we started those interviews uh, in the summer of 2016. And tell us a little more about what people will experience at the exhibit. Uh, They'll experience a lot of cool stuff. So there are three sections, identity, journey, and faith. Each section has a listening booth that features excerpts from 10 of our oral history narrators. And then typically there's a correlation between the oral history narrators and the artifacts that you see. So, for example, uh, Omar Northern, who's a member of a Naqshbandi uh, Sufi uh, community on 75th Street, uh, has created a turban specifically for the exhibit. You can hear Omar's story, and then you see a turban, his turban that he made for us. Now, Nuseba, as we mentioned, you're a junior at the Islamic Foundation School and a teen historian with the exhibit. How did you get involved? Um, I found out from a family friend of mine about the exhibit, and I thought it would be a really great opportunity to kind of learn about oral history and interviewing and gain some skills from that. And what did you contribute to the project? The eight colleagues of us, uh, teen historians, 
we worked on interviewing the interviewees or the narrators for the exhibit that you'll go through and listen to their stories throughout the exhibit. And so we conducted those interviews with them. We also worked on the social media portion um, with some marketing. Now, Peter, the exhibition offers a basic introduction to the Islamic faith for non-Muslim Chicagoans. What are some of the things you're hoping to get across? Uh, well, I, I think through the, the sections of the exhibition, we're hoping for people to see that, like so many communities uh, in the city and suburbs, that uh, Muslims are, are part of the history of Chicago. The history of Muslims in Chicago goes back at least to the 1893 World's Fair when the uh, first purpose-built mosques were here. And so, you know, really uh, we see Muslims throughout the history of Chicago. Uh, and so we're hoping that people, yes, they come away with maybe a basic understanding of the Islamic faith, but also understand uh, sort of these foundational moments and that Chicago has really really is a Muslim city and a, a city where Muslims have come and, and lived or have, have grown communities uh, throughout the city and suburbs. Nuseba, tell me about some of the people you got to learn more about as you were collecting these oral histories. There's so many, like such a variety of individuals that I've met and learned from. And then even in the interviews themselves, We've heard from different people from different backgrounds. Some people are Shia Muslims and some people, individuals, are Native Americans and tell us their stories. Um, one person in particular is Dalara Saeed, and we heard from her. She told us about um, growing up in Chicago and what it was like to move here from India and all of her experiences. Were there things you learned throughout this project? Yeah, there are a lot of different things that I've kind of learned about the Muslim community as a whole. There's kind of one area of the Muslim community that I'm used to seeing because of where I live out in the West suburbs. But it was very interesting to see where different people live and how their different cultures and stuff impact them and their religion. And so some of the people who I've been working with live in like uptown or in the south side of Chicago. And it's just really incredible to see where different people are and what their cultures are like. Peter, there are more than 30 oral histories in the exhibit, along with several objects and photographs. Tell us about some of the objects we, we see. Um, you mentioned the turban, but there are mm -hmm. other things as well. There's a lot of really cool stuff. One of the neatest pieces that we have is actually uh, a mural that we uh, commissioned from uh, a muralist, Trinidad Castillo, uh, who's a native Chicagoan and a convert to Islam. And he titled his uh, mural American Medina. And uh, it's a beautiful view kind of of the skyline at night. And he also incorporates the stars of the Chicago flag uh, and a Quranic verse in it as well. Uh, that's one of my favorites and a, a great place for selfies. We have a number of items that document the history of the Nation of Islam, uh, the fr a Fruit of Islam hat. Uh, we have a mantelpiece from uh, Elijah Muhammad Mosque Number 2. Of course, the Nation of Islam being so important to the history of Islam and the history of Chicago. So really, all of these artifacts are loaned to us, and we're so grateful to uh, Muslim communities, uh, urban and suburban, that have been so generous with their objects and their stories, of course. You say, but were there certain objects that particularly caught your attention? Yeah, there was actually a jump rope that Muhammad Ali used and has actually autographed as well. And so I found that to be a really cool piece. What was it about it that caught your attention? 
Um, just the fact that we even the museum was even able to get their hands on it, a jump rope that he specifically used in his training. Um, it was just a really cool piece. Uh, Peter, there's a section in the museum that looks at Islamophobia in the U.S. with stories from Muslim Chicagoans. Tell us about that part of the exhibit. Right. I think that's a very, uh, very important and affecting part of the exhibition. So what we've done uh, with a, an outside producer is to take snippets from about uh, nine or ten of our oral histories that uh, discuss uh, experiences that our oral history narrators, Chicagoans, have had with anti-Muslim bias or racism. And so it follows kind of a narrative arc where we start with experiences of school students being singled out because they were Muslim. Uh, Then it goes to a story of a woman who was forced to take off her hijab when she took her DMV photo. Then we hear about... uh, Uh, bias and racism after the September 11th attacks. And then it does end on a more positive note where we hear how Muslims locally are fighting Islamophobia and and racism. And so um, that's a part of the exhibit uh, where uh, one of our focus groups uh, that was made up of all Muslims said, you know, you have to tell this story along with the story uh, of identities, journeys, and faith. Uh, and we said, yeah, okay, you're right. That's something that we need to include. And so uh, we believe we've done it uh, in, a, in a respectful and impactful way. You say, but why do you think it's important to really place the Islamic faith a- as part of Chicago and part of Chicago's history? I think it's important because a lot of people don't understand that Chicago is a Muslim city, and it has been for such a long time. A lot of people look at Muslims as as outsiders and as the other when really we've we've been here forever and Chicago is our city and I'd call myself a Chicagoan, so I think that's important. That's Peter Alter, chief historian at the Chicago History Museum, and Nuseba Malik. She was a teen historian for the project American Medina Stories of Muslim Chicago. Peter, Nuseba, thanks for speaking with us. Excellent. Thanks for having us. And for more information about the exhibition, visit chicagohistory.org slash muslimchicago. Other stories from the WBEZ newsroom. Representative Bobby Rush is pushing back on a tweet from President Trump where Trump likens the impeachment inquiry to a lynching. A federal judge refused to dismiss Chicago's lawsuit against actor Jesse Smollett. That means the city can move forward in the effort to recoup about $130,000. That's the cost of the time and money needed to investigate Smollett's claim that he was a victim of a racist and homophobic attack last January. And this is the fourth school day of the Chicago Teachers Union strike. Contract negotiations continue between the two sides, and presidential candidate Elizabeth Warren joined striking teachers on the picket line today. Stay tuned to WB easy for the latest on the strike. And that's it for today's Reset. Thanks for making us a part of your day. I'm Jen White. Let's talk again soon.